Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Just Break Up, the podcast about love, heartbreak, and all the relationship advice you don't want to hear. My name is Sierra DeMolder. And I'm Sam Blackwell. And this week, we're going to tackle topics like when the relationship rules feel unfair, managing our professional jealousy, and watching our loved ones make the same mistake again. But Mm. before we begin, we just want to give you our Surgeon General's warning, which is that Sierra and I are not licensed mental health practitioners. So please take our advice with a grain of salt. (laughs) Yes, we are not professionals. We are not trained or accredited in this. Uh, We are just two people with microphones. So please take our advice as you see fit. Uh, We are only here to offer our very humble musings to hopefully shed some understanding and maybe some laughs on the incredibly rewarding but mostly confusing experience that is love. All right, so this week's check-in topic is inspired by a letter from Perplexed by Picky, uh, whose pronouns are she, her, who is writing to us from their bedroom. And basically, to summarize the question, um, her partner eats (laughs) like a (laughs) five-year-old, whereas like she considers herself a foodie, you know, studied abroad, loves cooking and experimenting with different flavors and trying out new restaurants, especially like Asian food. And her husband would be happy eating the same meal every day, i.e. chicken nuggets. (laughs) (laughs) I do love chicken nuggets. um, I can't blame them. Yes. Yeah. And so basically the question is, you know, any tips for working with a picky eating partner um, when all you want to do is eat raw fish all day? Um, And we thought this was like a good topic specifically to explore a little, even a little broadly, just about how does food, eating, cooking play a role in your partnership and how it can be a place for, um, you know, compatibility or non-compatibility or conflict. Um, Another thing that the letter writer added that I think is important to add in the mix is that um, he was raised middle class and she was raised poor. So she's used to eating to fill a hollow spot and he was used to eating for satisfaction and taste, Mm. um, which I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Sam, what are some initial thoughts about food, about the compatibility of food and eating yeah. and cooking and how it can play a role in relationships? Yeah, I think uh, this letter was really interesting to me, primarily because of that thing that she added around like the fact that there was class difference between them and that shaped yeah. their understanding of food. Um, because how we eat food our approach to food, our understanding of what food is, is like so tied to culture, upbringing, like where we were on the planet, what our socioeconomic status was, like our identities, like it's all very tied to that. And I think often, or at least I did, like just assumed that there were some like universal patterns around food (laughs) and then, and then got into a relationship and was like, what the fuck is happening here? Cause like, (laughs) 
But like in Peter's family, like he and his sister like played sports all the time. His parents owned a restaurant. And so they worked, you know, they didn't work nine to five. They worked whenever they needed to be at the restaurant. And so like the cultural pattern in his family was that there was food available, but you didn't eat it together. You just sort of like ate right. whenever it was ready and whenever you had time to. Whereas like with my family, it was like we somebody cooked dinner and we all sat down and we ate it together. And this has led to right. so many weird conflicts between us because of like these unspoken understandings of like what food is and what it means to us. So like when I cook dinner and Peter's like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to eat later. I'm not hungry yet. I'm like, it's like a personal affront to me. <laughs> it's like, totally. right. what is because happening Because your understanding here? of dinner is a moment for connection, not a moment yes. for fuel. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's like we're supposed to sit together and we're supposed to eat. And talk about our days and like, it's like a a thing that we do. Like eating alone, that sounds so sad to me. Like, why would you do that? Whereas he's like, no, you don't eat if you're not hungry. Uh, And there will be food in the the fridge. So grab it when you're ready. Um, So I'm thinking about this too, and sort of like the approach that that the letter writing, letter writer is talking about too, where it's like some folks approach food as just like this, it needs to taste okay. And like get in my stomach and some folks approach Mm -hmm. food and it's like, this is the most important thing in the world, right? Like it's got to taste good. It's got to be well-prepared. It's got to have quality ingredients. And like, how do you navigate when food is so tied with like broader symbols about our understanding of the world and like what our values are? Yeah. Or even, you know, just the diversity of people's experiences and their preferences. You know, I think about my spouse who enjoys good food, who um, eats for sustenance, but really, you know, just doesn't really care what the what the vessel that that sustenance comes in, you know, (laughs) (laughs) would eat the same. She calls them like willow bowls where it's just like. No seasoning, rice, oh broccoli, an egg, like random shit that sure. she just puts, you know, randomly some balsamic reduction from a can, you know, like a jar. But like, no, I honestly, <laughs> I'm concerned. About it's upsetting. That. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's because she doesn't, um, she doesn't have the same preferences that I do. Whereas I almost to like, I actually don't like this about myself. I, I wouldn't necessarily consider myself a picky eater, but Mm -hmm. I prefer to eat (laughs) really good food. And what does that, (laughs) what does that mean? If not a picky eater, um, this is coming up for us now, not in a conflict way, but I'm preparing to have a toddler, you know, in the next year and, um, cooking for my family and, and similar to what you said, sharing mealtime is going to be a value in our household. And, I'm trying to figure out where my my boundaries are in terms of creating meals that everyone in my family want to eat that also like I want to eat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I um I connect to the letter writer in that like I think I would really struggle if my partner didn't want to be exploratory with flavors, you know, or mm-hmm. were was eating um a, a, a style of food that like, even, you know, just put, put plainly, like if they were just really into, um, you know, what food I don't love, um, uh, like Southwestern food. It's just, it doesn't, I don't, it doesn't, I don't care about it. You know what I mean? I would much prefer How are we friends. <laughs> so I, I'd prefer Southeastern Eastern, um, or, or Indian or Thai, you know, I just sure. like, don't, 
um, in terms of like spice palettes. <laughs> sure. But so if somebody only wanted to eat, say Mexican, um, that would be that would be something to navigate. And so the, I guess the question is, how do you navigate um, differences in palates and and flavor preferences and eating habits in a way that honors the diversity of human experience, the, deser- the diversity of cultural uh, food preferences, yep. um, while also recognizing that this is a small incompatibility that you have to navigate somehow, you know? For sure. Yep. Yeah. Well, and I think it's important to recognize that this is not just a material conflict, right? It's not just about the food itself. It's also about the cultural values tied to food. It's also about the relational aspects of eating with each other or apart from each other. So part of it is like getting really interested in like, well, what are my understandings around food? What, yeah. it, what does it mean to me? What is it? What's important about it? Right. What about eating new or things that I haven't experienced before? What it's not just about the material, right? It's not just about like, oh, cause I want to try new things. Like what is it saying about you? And what is the fact that it's that he doesn't want to do this? What is that saying about the relationship? And then figuring out with all of that, right? What needs to happen? And and part of that is also like breaking down our prescribed understandings of like what food should be and how we should eat it. Right. Yes, part of it is being yes, like and that there's so much toxic ideals about what is right and wrong oh, for out sure. there. I'm just sitting here thinking another fucking layer of this that we haven't even da- you know, dipped our toes in is like the weird health world and the toxicity of mm-hmm. of the idea of healthy food and unhealthy food and the access to that type of food and For yada sure. yada yada and it's there's so much more than just food you know yep. it's so much more than just the differences in palates For sure yeah which is why that like that self awareness piece is so important like where did i learn that this food was healthy and this food was unhealthy what does it mean about a person who eats healthy food or unhealthy food, right? Like all of those things are so programmed into us. Um, and I feel like often we have such like a lack of imagination around like what is actually possible because it's, but we've been told there's a right way to consume food <laughs> in so many yeah. different ways, right? Like health, body, cultural sort of understandings of like what is appropriate and not appropriate to eat, right? Like all of this stuff, how we should eat all of that stuff. And, and part of it is like, you don't have to follow a prescribed thing. Like you two can figure out what's going to work for you. So if that means that you make separate meals every day, cool. Like that's fine. (laughs) You know, like I think Mm -hmm. that like the, according to the relationship guidelines that may have been handed down to us, people would be like, Oh, you eat separately. What does that mean? Where it's like, well, if you eat separately because you like different food, then what's the issue, right? Like what is the, what's the problem that's there? So I think it is about practicing some imagination around the fact that we don't have to all eat the same thing at the same time in the same way. I also think, um, I'm thinking about my mother and my stepfather and my mother is like, um, one of her values is, uh, eating, um, lots of plants and vegetables and fruits, you know, like that is just something that she prioritizes in her life. And her husband, uh, likes to make like a tuna casserole out of Mm. tuna fish and a jar of, um, mushroom soup and a bag of potato chips. That <laughs> I 
I've tried it. It's fucking it sounds so good. good. It sounds delicious. Yeah. And that like makes, you know, like talk about high blood pressure. That gives my mother high blood pressure because just like watching him eat it because of her values. Right. And right. he just like there's something I really respect that he just never he just never let my mother's values change his own preferences, you know? Mm -hmm. And I remember when they first got married, you know, my mother was kind of particular about the food that she brought in her house. But my stepdad would like eat chuck drink chocolate milk first in the morning, first thing in the morning. Like instead of coffee. (laughs) I know. And like twelve year old me was like, What? You can do do that? (laughs) Yes, totally. First Uh. of all, you can have chocolate milk in the house, you know. (laughs) Thanks mom for that trauma. Um but lower not trauma at all but um anyway uh you know just the point of bringing up my mother and and her dynamic in her marriage with food is that something that I do appreciate that they've done is this coexisting this this acceptance of each other's priorities and preferences and there are things that he makes that she likes and there are things that she makes that he likes like mm-hmm. my mother will go out of her way to make homemade bread for him that he loves. Right. Mm -hmm. Or whenever she makes a smoothie in the morning, he'll drink half of it. Um, And then whenever he makes X, Y, and Z, she'll have some of it, you know, like they have these points of connection while respecting that they just have different priorities and interests when it comes to what they put in their bodies, which everybody has a right to do. Um, And I know it's tricky. Like, I just want to say to our letter writer, um, like, this would be tricky for me, too. Um, And also, it's just another thing that we have to sort of deconstruct in our minds about what we were taught is right, is preferable, you know, and what is what we were taught is a flaw, you know, Mm -hmm. I, you use that word, and I, I don't think it's an incorrect word, but I do think it's an interesting one, you know, because <laughs> it, it's not a flaw. It's just a difference. So, it, you know, sort of negotiating that within yourself. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. This is food is such an interesting topic to figure out in the context yeah. of relationships and patterns and understandings. Yeah, so I feel like we could talk it. about this way more. Oh, absolutely. Yes. So thank you for, for offering us this question. We appreciate it. Absolutely. All right. Let's get into our first letter. So our first letter comes from Polly Pickle, whose pronouns are she, her, who is writing from Monogamy Mountain. Hello, Just Break Up team. So my partner, he, him, and I are in our 30s and recently moved to a much smaller city for my PhD program. It was a change that I really needed because the pandemic had marked a lot of difficult losses in our lives, but our relationship made it and my partner was very encouraging about me doing something different for myself and moved here with me. It's not so hard for him to move with me because he tours for his job and is away for long stretches of time. This was his job when we first got together as well, and it's part of the reason that he suggested we aimed to try an open relationship at some point. In fact, during our first DTR talks, he said that he felt polyamory was a, quote, evolved way of living, and that as a queer person, he'd love to eventually have partners of multiple genders. I had only ever been very monogamous, and I have a lot of trust issues due to trauma, so I told him that I needed to work up to that, but that that would eventually be okay. I hoped it would be anyway, as I was open to the idea. He said if anything happens while he's on the road to just tell him, and that would be okay. 
That was the very beginning of our relationship. And I have literally spent the entire relationship worried about this idea, thinking that I wasn't fulfilling (laughs) my partner's needs because we are being monogamous. It's been a backbone of anxiety for me, especially considering how many friends he has who practice alternative relationships. To put it simply, I felt like I wasn't being cool. And then I start my PhD program and I meet someone who sets my soul on fire. You know that feeling. This person feels like a kindred spirit, the kind that makes you think it's lucky that you met, but also somehow inevitable that you would have crossed paths at some point in life. Plus, he is also very hot. Let's call him someone. He, him. I remembered the old rules and got excited. This could be possible. I could finally consider a poly situation because I fell for another person in real life. When my partner was gone, I spent so much time with someone and we absolutely started falling for each other. I told him my situation and asked if he would be okay with dating after I spoke with my partner. A little trigger happy mistake on my part. I now understand that I should have talked to my partner first. Well, when I did talk to my partner, y'all, things did not go how I thought they would. I had so much hope that he'd feel some kind of relief or curiosity, but nope. He wasn't happy about this idea one iota. He gave me a ton of reasons why we shouldn't explore this, like the city is too small to be poly, and it's a bad idea to date people in my program, which I'm no idiot. I know the ways to meet people are either dating apps or proximity. That's literally how people meet, and also my partner is very anti-apps. He was also sad about the gender of the person and was reasonably mad that all this closeness was going on while he was gone. I felt that some of this was valid and some of it was hypocritical. To be honest, part of me feels controlled. I know that if the tables were turned, I would be asked to be open to the idea. In fact, I legitimately thought that I was supposed to get to this level in order to elevate my relationship and make my partner happy. I know that that might sound crazy, but I really did. All of these poly convos we previously had and my partner's clear fascination with it made it me feel like a relationship baby who couldn't grow up and let everyone love whomever they want. Well, I'm here now and I'm not allowed to do it, which is so confusing. To make it all harder, I sincerely miss someone. We text sometimes and see one another in groups, and it is hard. We lock eyes often, and you can just feel that longing. I feel guilty for hurting my partner with this idea and for giving someone hope, and I just feel sad. I told a friend down here all of this, and she kept asking me what I want, and I have a hard time answering that. I want to try this out and see how it goes. I want to not feel controlled or sad or resentful. Like I have a feeling that in a few years, my partner will come to me with this same thing and I'll be expected to be fine with it. I don't know. I don't know what I want. I originally wanted the whole monogamous marriage fantasy, but my partner never has. So now I've opened myself to alternatives and that's not okay either. I feel like a ball being bounced around the court, but I have no control of the game. I feel out of control and not in control of my life at all. Any advice on how to move on, move forward, or work out a solution would be so helpful. I love listening to you all and I appreciate you taking the time to read this letter. Okay, my darling, thank you so much for listening and trusting us with this letter. You're in a bit of a poly pickle, as you say. Makes me want to say poly pocket. <laughs> me too. Absolutely. As a little queer boy, did yes, you Yes, I had a poly, poly pocket. pocket. <laughs> <laughs> I could just see that so clearly. I had a, um, I had a, there was like a one for, for boys. It was like a little, it was a boy, obviously. And then my sister had a Polly Pocket. And let me tell you, I played with both. Yeah, no kidding. I wonder if there's like a burlesque name out there, Polly Pocket, you know. Probably. Okay, anyway. Um, All right, so 
this is tricky and there's a lot of like valid emotions coming up from all sides here. Like as much as I too am frustrated with some of your partner's responses, I also totally understand them. Uh, I totally understand this feeling of like non reciprocity that you, that you thought you were going to get, you know, you're like, I've been working towards this. I've been feeling insecure about this for years and now it's happening and you're threatened that it's a dude, <laughs> you know? Um, I definitely, a lot of this is really understandable. Um, so if, if possible, you know, just take a deep breath, take a step back and recognize that, you know, mo emotions are high feelings are getting hurt even when they don't want to be hurt. You know, I think the idea that like, polyamory is a more evolved way of being is inherently flawed because it implies that you're going to evolve yourself beyond the feelings of jealousy and you're going to evolve yourself beyond feelings um, of insecurity or, or whatever. And, and, you know, I've never been in a practicing polyamory relationship, but what I know from my polyamorous friends is that it takes a ton of communication and you definitely still feel jealous and you definitely still feel insecure. And there's a ton of negotiation that has to go on about what types of dynamics are um, acceptable or, you know, what, what, what new relationships um, are consensual, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot is happening here and it's really understandable that you're all having this emotional reaction. So for sure, that's first. Um, the other thing I, I want to bring into the conversation, and I think I'm wary of how I'm going to say this uh, because I know that there's a lot of, there's a lot of responses to polyamorous questions out there that sort of lean that skew to monogamous accidentally. Do you know what sure. I mean? They're like, yep. um, there's a lot of question, you know, I think there's a lot of line of thought out there that's like, oh, you just want to be monogamous because you want to sleep with that person. <laughs> or, excuse me, mm -hmm. uh, polyamorous. Um, or you want to be uh, polyamorous just to make your partner happy. You know, and I, I think while I understand some of those lines of thoughts, I think that they inherently undervalue polyamory, you know, by mm -hmm. just sort of like assuming back to the default monogamy. That all being said, <laughs> I do want to uh, repeat some of your words back to you, which is, you know, I was, I was worried that I would never be polyamorous. I would be, I was worried that I would never, uh, that I was holding my partner back. Um, and I was worried that, you know, you essentially said that this wasn't for you and that you were going to hurt your partner. And then you met this person and I'm, I'm curious if you could do some self-examination. If Is this person opening you to the possibility of polyamory? Like, is this person making you see a reality in which you want to be with more than one person? Or are you interested in being with this person? Because I think it's, and I'm not sure, <laughs> but I think it warrants just a little bit more exploration because I'm curious if you, I'm curious if you, uh, this is what I'm trying to say. Do you want to be with this person or do you want to be with this person and your partner? <laughs> sure. That might be like yeah. a very simple and or vague <laughs> or silly question. Um, but I think about like, is, is this person sparking in you 
a desire to be polyamorous or is this person sparking in you just desire, just a crush, you know, just a connection? Um, I'm not sure if that makes sense or is helpful. <laughs> I, I think it makes uh, a ton of sense. Um, that idea that like uh, you may just be feeling a connection with this person in the same way that like many of us who are in monogamous relationships feel connections to other people that we have decided not to act on because of the fact that we're in agreed upon monogamous relationships. Um, and if you are somebody who is not, doesn't feel equipped or doesn't feel ready to access polyamory or like do polyamory, then like maybe you want to be monogamously (laughs) with this other person as well. Right. Like maybe that's the issue here. Um, but yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right to feel like the rules have been changing around you um, sort of unilaterally, right? Where it was like, here's all the things that you said were okay and mm-hmm. now you're telling me they're not okay anymore. And I did the things in the parameters of the rules that you had said were okay. And look right. what it's getting me. It's getting me this like this reaction that I have somehow done something wrong. And I think it just speaks to the idea that uh, Sierra talked about, which is that like, polyamory is difficult. And it reminds me of, of Angela Chen's book Ace, where she sort of talks about how, uh, this idea of like sexual liberation means we're having as much sex with as many people as possible and as kinky as possible. And we took the actions from kink, but we didn't take the important like groundwork in kink, which is about consent which is about establishing the parameters of what that what the kink is going to look like and not look like and I, th- I think she said something like mm-hmm. now everyone can spit in each other's mouths but like nobody's asking for permission to do it right and so it's like I think that that's something that's happening too when it comes to polyamory as well is that like folks are like oh this is the more evolved and enlightened way of practicing relationships but but haven't taken with them the important groundwork to help make those relationships sustainable for everyone. Right. And that's why there are so many books, so many podcasts, so many Instagram folks who are talking about the actual practice of polyamory, the actual practice of ethical non-monogamy, because it's not just like you, you think yourself into enlightenment, right? It is about like, you are deep in communication with each other. You have rules and parameters around what's okay and what's not okay. You recognize that your partner's actions aren't necessarily about, uh, or they're not responsible for your feelings of jealousy or your feelings of anything, right? Like you, those are things that you need to take on. And it sounds like in this relationship, you were sort of given this idea that like, oh, this is enlightened, let's do it. And then in actual practice, your partner was like, oh shit, this is actually harder (laughs) than I thought it was going to be. And so I think what's available to you is like, what do you want to do in this situation? You either need to figure out how you two are going to work on actually enacting ethical non-monogamy in your life, which is not just saying, wouldn't it be cool if we could sleep with other people? Or like, listen, when I'm on tour, like do whatever you want and I promise I'll be okay with it. But instead like, what are the yeses and nos in this situation? What are the things we're going to do to deal with our feelings of jealousy that are inevitably going to come up? How much do we want to know right. about what the other person is doing outside of our relationship, right? Like all of this stuff needs to be talked about and figured out. And so my encouragement for you is if you want to practice this non-monogamy with him, then you two need to actually have some conversations around those parameters. And 
And if he's suddenly realizing that he's not okay with non-monogamy, like then you need to have a conversation about what, <laughs> where this monogamous relationship is going. Again, what are right. inside and outside of boundaries when it comes to this monogamous relationship that you're in? Because we can't just assume that we're all operating under the same understandings of what the rules are. We actually have to talk right. about them with each other. And I think it's really, f- it would be really fair for you to say, hey, I am a little confused. I'm a little frustrated by your response. I understand that it is an emotional one. I understand that this anxiety that's coming up for you is because you're feeling hurt and you're feeling, um, I don't know if I would use the word threatened, but you know, like it's okay to affirm his reaction and also say, you know, I feel frustrated that you were upset that it was a man, you know, like I think Mm -hmm. there's some inherent sexism in that, um, uh, or whatever. And you, like Sam said, you have to negotiate where are the, what are the parameters of your relationship? What are the, the exact yeses and nos? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm, I'm not going to assume anymore about where this relationship is going to go or what to do. Sure. Next, I'm just going to, you know, leave you with, uh, where you are in the present moment, which is, um, taking stock of what this monogamous relationship looks like now and what, what boundaries may open or, or stay closed. Yep. But in order to be in that present space, I do think that you're going to have to temporarily put space between you and this someone, um, because like we tell anybody who writes in, who says like, oh, I'm in a relationship, but I think I'm in love with somebody else and I want to mm-hmm. be with them. You know, we always say like, you need to deal with your first relationship first and don't use that person as a escape car or as right. a place for you to mentally daydream away your problems in your actual relationship. Um, someone might be a really special person that you have a very strong connection with. You also don't know them as intimately um, as you may feel. You know, you don't know them um, several years into a relationship like your current partner. Um, So make sure you're not putting them on an undue pedestal. And to be honest, like no matter what happens next, I think that there needs to be some space between you and that someone so that you can focus on what your current relationship needs to look like. So I don't know if that means like temporarily blocking someone, not hanging out with him in social circumstances so that you don't have to feel those pangs of longing or confusion. Um, How can you clear this like mental landscape so that you can bring as much clarity uh, to your current relationship, whether or not that relationship stays the same um, or not. Um, And it's okay to grieve this loss if you feel deeply connected to this someone, which I I know you do, which is real. Mm -hmm. Um, It's okay to grieve that loss, even if it's a temporary loss, even if you decide in the future to open up your relationship and you have a great polyamorous experience um, with this person. It's okay to say... Um, you know, I'm sad that I met this person and I feel so connected to them, but I might not be able to fulfill that, fulfill that connection to such an, ex- to such an extreme that I want or to, to a, to a point that I want. Um, yep. 
Yeah. And don't get, don't last little thing. Don't get confused by the false romance of longing. <laughs> uh, so many times that. in my so life, <laughs> I, I mistook the, the, the false romance of longing to be like a symbol of importance in my life. And really it was For just sure. me longing. It was just me being mm-hmm. like, oh man, I wish things were different. And then when they were there, I was, I was like, oh shit. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, this wasn't as good as I thought it was from over there. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, my darling, um, we hope that this helps uh, you get out of this pickle. Absolutely. Thank you so much for writing. We love you. We love you. Y'all, as a self-employed person, as a mom of a toddler, I am always struggling with finding time to manage my finances. At the end of a busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all of my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions I no longer use. But now I use Rocket Money and it does all of that for me. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, you have full control over your subscriptions and a clear view of your expenses. You can see all your subscriptions in one place. And if you see something you don't want, Rocket Money can help cancel it with a few taps. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month. So I can clearly see my spending habits and check myself if needed. Plus, they'll help me create a custom budget and keep my spending on track. Rocket Money will even help try to negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you, which I obviously love as a somewhat introverted, conflict-avoidant person. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Rocket Money has over 5 million subscribers and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash just break up. That's rocketmoney.com slash just break up. Rocketmoney.com slash just break up. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets, sweaters, and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune, and luckily I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. Quince has things like premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. And the best part is that all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. This past month, I treated myself to a pair of new slippers because I'm in that hashtag mom life era of my life um, in which (laughs) um, I am never not in slippers. And these are 100% Australian shearling lined clog slippers. And I love that they're slip on, but they have those durable rubber outsoles. They're super cushy, super comfortable, but I feel like I can run outside to like take the trash out in them while also like staying warm and active 
in the house. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash just break up for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's quince.com slash just break up to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash just break up. All right, our next letter comes to us from Green Eggs and Ham, whose pronouns are they, them, who is writing to us from a pit of envy. Dear Sierra and Sam, thank you for all your generosity towards strangers. I love that. You're welcome. I'm writing about jealousy in friendships. For context, I am a graduate student and working visual artist. I am struggling with a strong and distressing feeling of jealousy towards two friends slash fellow students in my program. One friend, let's call them B, I am very close with, although our friendship has become a little strained recently. I have felt ignored and passed over for other friends as well as unsupported artistically by B. I always try to say thoughtful things about their work and engage it with and engage with it in a meaningful and supportive way because I believe we are on the same team as artists and this is how I try to treat everyone but this rarely feels reciprocated still we have been in the trenches with each other through personal ups and downs and have also had fun times and important shared experiences the other friend let's call them R is more of an acquaintance but still we have a lot of shared experiences and have known each other for a good while Both B and R have recently gotten major creative opportunities that will help launch their careers and give them freedom and much needed money. As a friend on paper, I think this is great news. I want to see my friends succeed. I believe in what they are doing and what they have worked so hard to reach to this point. In talking with them about the opportunities, I have been nothing but supportive, inquisitive, and try to reflect what words I would want from friends if I were in their shoes. But, and I'm filled with shame even writing this, in private, in my head, and in conversations with close friends who don't know them outside of our field, I am a disgusting green jealousy monster. Since we became friends in the context of our highly competitive program, I have from time to time felt a little jealous of the two of them or slightly competitive. I believe in the work we do and try to uplift us all, even if my internal feelings are sometimes at odds. Since hearing about these particular recent opportunities, however, I feel envy in a really deep way I've never experienced, and it's quite upsetting. I do not often struggle with feelings like these. I feel left behind, wondering what I did or didn't do right or wrong, what getting slash not getting these things, which they were hired for independently, not as a result of a major search or competition, so I'm not even in the equation, to be honest means about my work and in turn about me as a person hello terrible work life boundaries for artists i feel afraid that i'll never live up to what they can do or they'll surpass me and i'll just be another middling dabbler calling themselves an artist for the record i don't even believe in the middling dabbler Uh, art should be for everyone um, to make an experience but i have a hard time allowing myself into that definition and feel i have to stand out in order to prove my worth The emotions and jealousy are overwhelming. I'm talking heart palpitations, wishing mean things, strong anxiety and intrusive thoughts. I hate Mm. feeling this way. 
I constantly am applying to opportunities, grants, and jobs, and usually have a tough skin about the constant onslaught of rejection that th- that is the artist's lot in life. But this feels like a huge blow, even though intellectually I know it has nothing to do with me. So blow feels like the wrong word. There are so many things magnifying these feelings. I know that if I wasn't already feeling difficulties in my relationship with B, I might react differently to this news. It also didn't help that B told me over text saying, I can't hang out tonight because I'm working on this opportunity in response to a plan I didn't even invite them to. They had earlier mentioned that they were busy. It's also the holidays and I haven't been working and I feel disconnected from my art. Another major factor is that we're all graduating soon and I, I'm not continuing school and I'm planning to give freelancing a shot. It feels like if I had something like what they have lined up, I'd be in much better position to succeed. And the meta emotions surrounding the jealousy are tough too. shame mm. for feeling such negative things towards my friends, especially B and worries that this means my motivation behind making art is a shallow careerism. Wow. <laughs> I know. Man, we are so fucking mean to ourselves. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Even though I can rationally see outside this, I'm, I totally feel consumed right now and don't know what to do. I have to see them all the time. And I want to spend our last semester together in support and friendship, not anxious anxiety and envy. I'm afraid that I'm losing myself or worse, discovering who I really am as this careerist, competitive, bad friend. Any thoughts or words of advice would be so appreciated. I feel really stuck in this gloomy omelet of envy and I just don't know what to do to cope. (laughs) Thank you for reading this. Your effort in making this podcast is seen and valued by many. When I first read this letter, read this letter, I feel like I skipped the last couple of sentences because yeah, I no, didn't omelet, know that gloomy was. I was like, I love that. <laughs> I know. It's very charming. All right, my darling, my darling, my darling. I love you and I love this letter. Um, I'm sorry mm-hmm. that you're feeling these intense feelings. Mostly of of self-loathing and shame towards the feelings that are coming up. Um it is a tough world out there for artists, and I know it um, as well as you do. Um, there's a lot of things coming into this letter, you know, mm-hmm. our cultural devaluing of the arts and the scarcity that comes with that uh, professionally. Mm-hmm. The you know something I really relate to in this letter is like the weird desire to prove yourself professionally as an artist, which also makes you feel complicated about your motivations behind your art. (laughs) Like somehow, you know, the only real art is the quote unquote authentically tortured (laughs) (laughs) or something. Yes. I don't know. So fucking weird. Um, And then also the, 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 partnered feelings of jealousy and then shame about that jealousy. Like it somehow makes you less evolved. Another theme in this letter or this episode, I mean. Um, So let's just start with those feelings of jealousy. This is totally normal. This is Mm. totally acceptable. This isn't telling me some unique and private revealing story about you, you know, Mm. (laughs) <laughs> Everybody can has the capacity to feel jealous for the people that they love most in their life. Everybody has the capacity to feel jealous for 
the the people that they want to succeed, you know, mm-hmm. um, you love these friends. You have conflicts with these friends because you two, you guys are humans. And that's just what happens when, when people are in relationships with one another. And also, uh, you have these complicated feelings because you are in a field that celebrates few and under, undervalues your labor and your yeah. genius and yeah. and uh that makes you fight every fucking day to justify your personhood your professionalism and pay your bills mm-hmm. absolutely yeah i love the idea of like you don't want to be a careerist but also you need to make a career out of your art <laughs> it's like uh okay well which which of these things am i supposed to be doing <laughs> and let's pause to examine like the hypocrite the hypocritical point of view that we have about that, you know, it's like we, we want to consume art, but we don't want it to be mainstream and we don't want it to be mass produced Yep. and we want it to be authentic, but it can't be too authentic or else we don't want to consume it. You know, like, <laughs> yep. I don't know, there's just all these weird rules that we have about um, art and somehow saying like, I want to make art that people see or that pays my bills or, or whatever somehow devalues the integrity of it. There's just a lot there to yep. unpack yeah. or process Absolutely. as a person. And it and it sounds green eggs and ham, like you know a lot of these things intellectually, right? Like it sounds like you know a lot about these these like systems of belief that are impacting mm-hmm. folks who create art. Um you know, you've you named a bunch of them in there <laughs> in your letter, right? Like the dabbling Yeah. Like the dab, the middling dabbler or like the careerist or like all of these different things, all of these different tropes of like artists that are good or bad. Um, and I also want you to be doing some of that. I want you to be turning some of that, that sort of perception and intellectual understanding inward. So I, it, it's really easy to like look at these different systems and say like, those things are wrong, but it's much harder to say like, Oh, and how is this coming up in me? And what is the wound inside me that I need to tend in order for me to stop inherently believing these things? So what are, right, these feelings of jealousy, these feelings of rage that you're feeling, which by the way, are totally, totally understandable, given the context that you are in. (laughs) I I, I totally get it. The way you enunciated that, I I love that it like actually, it swallowed the T. So it was like, oh, totally. Totally get it. Um, Is by what is the soothing that you need to do for the wound inside you? Not telling yourself all the reasons why you're wrong. Right. I don't want you to be like, oh, I shouldn't care about this because I don't believe in the myth of the middling dabbler. Oh, I shouldn't believe in this because I know we're not in a competition. We are all on the same team. But I want you to do the, the, the work to say, what is the thing you're telling yourself about yourself in this situation? So when you are feeling this rage, when you're feeling this jealousy about these other people, Instead of telling yourself, I shouldn't be feeling this, instead being like, of course I'm feeling this because there's, here's this story that I've always been telling myself. And so what, what sort of soothing do I need to do? Do I need to say to myself, you are an artist, regardless of what your friends are doing, right? Do you need to say to yourself, the work that you do is important. It's just as important as these other people's, right? Do you need to say to yourself, it's okay 
if you are not immediately successful. And yes, I know for a fact that what I appreciate about the work that I'm doing is that I love to do it and I'm going to find ways to make that happen. Even if it doesn't look like, you know, I'm being premiered yeah. in, in the museum of modern art, right? Like there's, <laughs> there's all sorts of different ways <laughs> that you. you can do artists. I was like, Sorry. I don't know anything about art. <laughs> It's like name a museum. And I was like, um, the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Uh, right. So like, because this is about these systems that you're operating in. Right. And it is about the beliefs that, that have been sort of, you've absorbed through osmosis and through like intentional and explicit teaching. But it is also about the ways in which those beliefs have wounded you. And the solution isn't just to disrupt those beliefs that you have about the system. The solution is also to tend to the wound that those systems have caused in you and to say, yes, absolutely. Of course you're hurting. This is hard because of all of these different reasons. You're an artist too, even though, even though it doesn't feel like it right now, you're an artist too. And your work is important. And I want to, I want to call back to a great Sam Blackwell ism. You're not an artist. You're a person who creates art. That's right. Ooh, that's a ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Can you explain that, Sam? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, th- because this idea of like you are the thing that you do is so challenging for us because then our worth is dependent on us doing that thing. And so what I have had to do in the past is is sort of dismantle things that are, that have sort of defined me and instead put me at the center. I am a person who runs. I'm not a runner because even if I'm not running, that doesn't mean I'm not a person, right? It doesn't mean that I, I don't have an identity. It doesn't mean I don't have a sense of self. Running is a hobby, but it is not who, what makes up me. It is not about my worth or my, my value in this world. I'm a person who bakes. I'm not a baker, right? I, if I don't bake ever, that doesn't mean that I am, I've lost my sense of self. Right. It just means that I have given up the hobby that I have or have given up something that I liked to do. And in the same way of like, you are an artist, absolutely. But you are also just a person who does art, right? The art isn't, central to your value or worth as a human being, even as I know that it's deeply important to you. I want to talk really briefly about what it was like for me as a professional creator over the last 15 years, because um, a lot of y'all know that I have a poetry career that I used to do full time before I got into podcasting. And this year in June, I'm publishing my first book since like 2017. So it's been a minute since I have put something out there in the poetry world. And I really felt like that side of my career was done. Um, And it's made me really reflect on a lot of my younger years in the field and, and community and whatnot, because I feel like I'm re-entering this world. Anyway, um, I've been thinking a lot about who I was in my 20s and 30s um, as a writer because I I connected with this um, uh, a poet who's like a decade younger than me, and she was she's recently been telling me like I, I it's Kaylin Conlon I suggested her book a couple um, blind dates ago. Sure. Kaylin has been so generous in telling me like how <laughs> poetry gets sold and promoted on TikTok these days. She's been mm-hmm. so generous in talking about her um, 
industry secrets or whatever, like what's, what's working for poets now. And it's, it's just honestly been so generous, so kind, so exciting. And it's made me look back on the time um, that I was coming up in the poetry world, 2010, 2012, um, when TikTok wasn't a thing, Instagram wasn't really a thing. YouTube wasn't even the social global tool that we used today. And so to be a professional poet, even though it's not even like a huge career now, but it, it was a lot, it was way harder than it was now. And it's still, it's hard now. What am I trying to say? Being a professional poet um, was less accessible um, back then than it is now. And it's, and it's hard even now. Mm. Um, but we didn't have these social media platforms in the same way. YouTube was just becoming this platform for Sorker Word. Anyway, um, Back then, I felt like it's not that I felt competitive. It's not that I felt threatened by other people's success, but the success felt felt smaller. And so when someone in my community got an opportunity, it felt like there was less of a pie. So I sometimes I think it made me feel sure. stingy with the, my joy for other people, or it made me feel stingy um, with the mm. opportunities. Um, I definitely tried to push back on that and do, do like the head and heart work of, of that, you know, that Sam is talking about that, that you are talking about um, green eggs and ham working through all those things. And recognizing where those like cultural pressures are coming from to feel validated as an artist. Mm. But I guess I'm saying all of this as somebody who's, you know, now I'm 36 and I'm looking back on the last 15 years of my career, really wishing that I kept my eyes and heart focused on what really matters. Because what matters at the end of the day is your relationship with yourself, your relationship to your art, and the community that you build and uplift and bring along the way, um, offering your joy for someone and their success doesn't mean that there's less joy and success for you. Um, opportunities going to other people doesn't tell me something inherent about that your value as a person or as a professional. And I know this is hard work, but I've just been thinking a lot lately about trying to view other people's opportunities as, you know what, I might have an emotional reaction to them, which is totally valid and worth tending to. And also it's, it's, there is good, there's good in other people's successes, even if I'm having a hard time processing it. Um, Artistic grief is real. Artistic career grief is real. So you can invite those feelings of jealousy in like any other feeling, examine them, nurture them um and think about well what is your what is it's not what your career goals are (laughs) and this might sound like a little too sagey but like what are your life values what are your life values are your life values financial uh validation for your art I'm not even, I'm, I'm saying that is, that is so important to us That's artists. So like the first time I got <laughs> paid, that is so important. But what are the values of your life? For sure. I love to get paid for my art. I would prioritize uh, community and friendships over that, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope all of this makes sense. I, I'm just trying to reach out to you like artist to artist and say, I know this is real. I know this is hard. And also with some head and heart work, 
maybe some therapy, a professional person that you can bounce some of these thoughts thoughts off of. You can process through these feelings, um, and and you're gonna have to, you're still gonna have to process through these. I I still feel this professional jealousy in my yep. 30s, working on my fifth book. You know, <laughs> right? Yeah, absolutely. And I I appreciate I appreciate what you say. Uh, you're saying about sort of like finding that community, creating and fostering that community. And that doesn't mean that everyone in your life is going to also have those values around creating community. Like there are for sure always going to be the people who are like, I'm going to be the best. I'm going to get all the opportunities. I really want, I really want a claim. Like that's a value, whatever it is. But from my experience, what happens is that like, then the folks who are like, that doesn't actually appeal to me. I was sort of forced on that trajectory. But instead, what I want to do is just create community with like-minded people who are trying to do important work in the world. And it's way right. more fun, at least for me, to be in that group of people who's like, yeah, I want to make sure that I can live my life. But also I am like, my values are driving this. I'm wanting to be in community with other people. I'm wanting to sort of share the wealth around uh, what these opportunities are. Like there's much more and in my experience, as you sort of progress along your career, those types of people will come out of the woodwork and you'll be able to find each other in different right. ways. Right. Exactly. All right, my darling. Um, this is a very long-winded way of saying this is <laughs> totally valid. We're sorry you're feeling this way. You are important and we love you. Thank you so much for writing. All right, everyone. Our next letter comes from Dysfunctional Sisterhood, whose pronouns are she, her, who is writing from Illinois. Hi there. I stumbled upon your podcast over a year ago, and it has become such a beacon of light and a supplement to therapy for me. So thank you so much for all that you do. I've tried to condense this as much as possible, but it's quite a saga. Trigger warning for child abuse. I am a queer cisgender female, a bit older than y'all in my 40s, and my sister is in her 50s now. We grew up in a home that was abusive light, which is to say that my two siblings and I were never beaten until our bones were broken, but we might be slapped in the face for disagreeing or we might be whipped with a belt. I know it's a low bar, but since it was the rural South, this was fairly common enough that if I dared speak about it to friends, they would act like I was making a big deal out of nothing. From an early age, my I referred to my father as Jekyll and Hyde because there was a side of him that I did love. He was my dad after all, and he had moments of kindness. But then there was this other side that would abuse me, my mom, and my sister. And though she was a victim too, my mom still shares some of the blame for this in my eyes. I knew that I never wanted a relationship like theirs. And thankfully, since my last relationship ended nine years ago, I've been reckoning with my past and the things I tell myself that I am not proud of in therapy. But that is all backstory. And this letter is about my older sister. We'll call her Marie. Marie is seven years older than me. When my brother and I were little and she was a teenager, see, she sometimes acts like our protector and took the brunt of my dad's abuse to shield us. At other times, she treated us as like annoying pests because, well, adolescence. She used to run away from home periodically, once even going so far as to steal a car with some friends with a plan to head out of state. They got caught and carted home by the cops instead. It's been decades since those days. Both of my parents have passed away, and my sister has been in multiple relationships and marriages. She married young, had her two sons at 19 and 20, and later divorced their father. After their relationship ended, she was in another short-lived relationship with a man we'll call Jimmy. Jimmy left his wife for Marie, and during the course of their relationship, he was heavily abusive towards my two nephews. My eldest nephew, who is queer, has related painful stories of being beaten and called the F-slur by Jimmy. 
Jimmy eventually left Marie for a younger woman and then left her to go back to his previous wife. Meanwhile, my sister married her former high school boyfriend, small towns, am I right? Who passed away from kidney failure in two in 2005. Then she met and married another man who she has been with since. We can call him Chad. Chad's health has been declining for a few years, but recently he was given a diagnosis of stomach cancer and told by the hospital that it is inoperable and they are sending him home on hospice. Maria has been keeping my brother and we posted with updates about the situation via text and Marco Polo messages. This week, this... This week, these updates took a dramatic shift when she told us that since Chad has been home from the hospital, his behavior towards her has changed, and she has told him that she wants to separate. She has been seeing someone who was just a friend at first, but she was helping this someone through his grief and because his wife just passed away. You might be able to guess the next part. The someone she is leaving her husband for is Jimmy, the man who previously subjected her now adult children to horrendous abuse. She says that he has changed. I'm at a loss for what to say to her. I haven't replied at all because I have just been feeling that there's nothing I can really do or say. I talked to my eldest nephew and he is understandably upset. They don't have a great relationship already. My nephew feels that she is a toxic person and this sealed the deal for him. To me, she is my older sister, the one I looked up to when I was a kid, the one who had been through so much herself. It's just hard to cut her off. That's not really something I want to do, but I also don't know how to support her being with someone who hurt my nephews in the way that my dad hurt us. Add to the fact that she also goes back and forth about our shared history, acting like it didn't happen the way I say it did, which is beyond hurtful, and sharing the difficult memories with me. There's obviously much more of this than I have room for here, and this is already incredibly long, but there have been lots of choices Marie has made in my life that have been baffling and upsetting. She has said and done a lot of things that I have not just forgiven, but explained away, citing her hardships and the ways she is different from me as the reasons I couldn't fully understand. But I don't know how to be there for her through this. Part of me wants to be just as done with her as my nephew is, but part of me finds the idea really hard to bear. I guess my question is, what do I say or do if I can't find a way to support her decisions? How can we be in each other's lives if this is who she chooses to be with now? Mm. All right, my darling, thank you so much for writing and trusting us with this very complicated letter. I... um there are lots, there's lots going on here and it's understandable that this is weighing heavy on your heart um, as a sister, as a family member, as an aunt, as a person. Um, I think this is a perfect opportunity for us to practice some of the life's hardest nuances. Um, first, people can be more than one thing to us at the same time. Yep. Even if those those things are conflicting, your sister can always be the person who helped protect you as a child, the person who endured these abuses with you, and the person who routinely disappointed, confused, and overstepped boundaries with you. You know, the same person who protected you as a child is the person who's going back to this abuser, um, this relationship that actively hurt many people in her life, including herself. Mm. Those two things, those conflicting people are the same person. And I know that's confusing. And I know that honestly almost makes it harder at first, you know, to accept that, that it's a yes and situation. But once you, once you accept that she can be that protector from your past or that important person from your past and that confusing, hurtful, hurtful person 
in the present, then all of a sudden you you no longer have to make sense of that co- conflict. You know, you don't have to you don't have to choose one or the other anymore. Right. And the other like huge nuance um, uh, of life that we can practice in this letter is you don't need to understand. Mm. You don't need to understand what is bringing her back to Jimmy. You don't need to understand there. Um, there's no life path or trauma or shared experience that will make you fully understand somebody else's lived experience or their choices. Um if you could really, if possible, can you relieve yourself of the pressure of understanding your sister um, and say, you know, those are her choices and I'm not in her brain or her body. So I'm, I'm going to relieve myself of that, um, of that confusion and just say that's, Mm -hmm. that's theirs. That's, that's on her. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think that you, can continue to be in her life if you would like to, but you don't have to just like swallow this pain that you're experiencing, right? It is perfectly justifiable for you to have a conversation with her about how you don't like the way that this man has treated her. You don't like the way that this man has treated her sons and you're not supportive of this relationship, even as you are still supportive of her as your sister, as a person that you love. And, and you get to decide what the, the boundaries around how you interact with her and Jimmy are right. And often we think of boundaries as like hard and fast. You're in my life or you're out of my life, but boundaries can look a whole lot of different ways, right? It could look like I would love to hang out with you. I am not going to hang out with Jimmy, or it could look like uh, I'll be around the both of you. As long as there are other family members present, it's not going to be just me and you and him. Right. Or it could look like a heart boundary. It could look like, you were going to continue to see each other periodically or at the same amount of time. And I'm not going to trust you with certain aspects of my life, or I'm not going to dig into the nuances of your relationship with Jimmy anymore. Right. There could be different types of boundaries that exist for you. And what's challenging about that is that like, that puts a lot of uh, pressure on you, right? Like you have a lot of choices available to you in this, even as you don't have a choice about the fact that your sister is going back to this man. And so that's hard. That's hard when we're like, Ooh, I actually have some power here to do something different. Like that's a, that can be an intimidating thing. And it's hard because you have to do this on behalf of yourself and your sister, right? Like you yeah. are the one that is having to do this emotional work because of the choices that she's making. And again, yeah. I wouldn't blame you if you said, I don't want this person in my life anymore. I understand that she protected me when we were kids. I also understand that we have this sort of shared history around the abuse that we face. And it's important for me to have somebody who can corroborate my own experiences with this. But it's also okay for you to say, and I don't want that in my life anymore. I can't have right. this uh, this sort of toxicity. I can't have the relationship as it currently is right now in my life. Um, right. But I'm sorry. I wish, I wish I could tell you, here's the seven ways to trick her into not being with this man, right? Like that would be really easy. <laughs> uh, 
but the only thing that you have available to you right now in this moment is how you want to respond to this reality, this unchangeable yeah. reality that she's choosing to go back to this, this man. And how are you protecting yourself? And also how are you making sure that you're, you're caring for your nephews as well? Cause it sounds like they're very important to you. Um, and you know, they're going through something similar in that they're also seeing a person that they love go back to somebody who caused them a lot of harm. All of this is making me think about some personal work I had to do over a loved one over the last couple of years. Um, that the loved one um, was always sort of going through things. And for so long, I thought that the way I, I needed to love them was to worry about mm -hmm. them <laughs> mm -hmm. and to help them make quote the right choices so that, you know, this suffering wouldn't continue. And I would worry and worry and worry and worry. And I would offer resources and I would offer support and I would offer feedback and I would offer different life paths. Um, and all of a sudden I think I needed to, I realized that my worry didn't help this person. Like it, it never once helped yeah. this person. It never once changed their life for the better. And they were always going to make the choices that they were going to make. And I don't mean that in such a disconnected way that it might sound like I do believe community family relationships are important and the support and love from these people in our lives can sway our choices or can, you know, change our life paths or whatever. But in this moment, in that place in my life, I had to disconnect myself from that person's choices and livelihood and wellness to realize that they were, they were sovereign. You know, they were, mm. they were making their own choices and that my worry didn't even, my worry wasn't helpful. Um, and it wasn't serving me. I'm not sitting here saying, don't worry about your sister. Um, mm -hmm. But what I'm trying to point out is the ways in which you are or are not responsible for helping this person, for forgiving this person, for even worrying about their life choices. I realized that I could, you know, like that cycle of protection that often abused children enact in adulthood. Like you cannot... There's, there's not a protection that you need to offer your sister right now. Mm. Um, you, she is free to make the choices that she is going to make. Are they disappointing? Are they hurtful? Can they be dangerous? Absolutely. But right now you need to make sure that you are protecting your heart, that you are protecting your family, uh, your, your a household, you know, um, and separating the choices that your sister makes from your wellness. You know, it can, it can break your heart every night if you let it. Mm. I, I know because I spent years worrying and staying up late and thinking that I was personally responsible for changing my loved one's mind to make for better sure. choices. And then all of a sudden I was free of that and it's, it's much more easy for me to move about the world and just nod at their choices and nod at them from a safe distance and love them, love them unconditionally from a safe distance. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I think that's what 
um, can be helpful about it, right? Is if we if we sort of practice this radical acceptance of the people in our lives and see them for all of their complications and nuances, then it becomes easier to love them, and it becomes easier for us to know the boundaries and edges of our willingness to hold them, right? Like it can say, like, yeah, absolutely, I know that my sister has trouble in relationships. I know that my sister loves this man for whatever reason. I know that she's choosing to be with someone who's caused abuse to her children. And with all of that information, I can say, here are the parts that I love and will tend to. And here are the parts that I need to keep distance and space from because they're not serving us or serving me. And with that information, we can begin to make some more informed decisions about where we want to be and where we don't want to spend as much time. Mm, absolutely. We know this is tricky and painful and your boundaries and your relationship are going to ebb and flow as they mm-hmm. have your entire life. Um, but we believe that you can make some great choices for yourself and for your loved ones um, moving forward in this really hard time. Absolutely. Thank you so much for writing. We love you. All right, everyone, this brings us to the blind date segment of our episode. This is when we try and set you up with something that we think that you're really going to like. So this week, we want to send you home with? Uh, it's a little bit of a complicated blind date. Um, <laughs> okay. I, I Going outside? Is that have, what we're doing again? <laughs> no. Uh, actually, it's a little bit of a bummer. Oh. Um, I was meaning to... Uh, I've been meaning to dedicate an episode to a friend. Um, I found out on New Year's Eve that my friend Tanya Ingram, who has been a guest on our show twice, um, phenomenal poet, mental health advocate, friend, person, uh, passed away. And I know that the Just Breakup community loved her. Um, I know that her interview on her Head and Heart Heartwork interviews um, was really meaningful, and the poetry that she shared on one of our uh, lives back during the pandemic really moved a lot of people. And you know, just from being her friend and her colleague, I know that Tanya changed hundreds of lives. So I wanted mm-hmm. to dedicate this episode to her, and you know, tell more people about her. Uh, so I guess this. Blind Date is Tanya and Tanya's amazing work and her legacy, and also um, to point people in the direction of her funeral fund. Um, Tanya in life spoke about having a green burial, which is a little bit expensive in Los Angeles. And so they, community members like Matthew Cuban and Alicia Wise, who were also on our interview, are raising funds um, to have a memorial for her and to have her buried in a green way in which she will turn into a tree. Um, And uh, if you are interested, um, you can, um, I'm just going to have Spencer link um, to how you could donate to her memorial fund and um, any extra money raised from that is going to go into a trust fund for Tanya's 15 year old sister. Um, And I know that this is going to be listened to retroactively by people um, who might hear this months after Tanya's memorial. So if you don't have an opportunity or funds to donate to something like that, um, check out Tanya Ingram. She has several books published. Um, She was such a giver, you know, she just like 
she spent her whole life trying to uh, free other people, and I miss her dearly. So, Tanya yeah. Ingram. Thanks for for sharing that, um, and love you in this moment as you're grieving for the loss of yeah. your friend. Um, and Tanya was a really special, talented, wonderful person. So, um, yeah. she's definitely missed. She was so special. Anyway. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow us on uh, Facebook. You can like us on Facebook and you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, all of the things at Just Break Up Pod. You can slide into our DM, send us your favorite relationship memes, but most importantly, you can submit your questions about all matters of the heart at JustBreakUpPod.com, which is also where you can find our merchandise. Please remember to subscribe, follow, give us a five-star rating and review, and consider supporting us on Patreon. If you support us on Patreon for as little as $5 a month, you'll get an additional bonus weekly episode, as well as other perks at different levels. That's patreon.com slash justbreakuppod. This literally keeps our mics on and helps us reach more brokenhearted souls who need two random strangers giving them relationship advice. Original Just Break Up is a production of Duvid Media, original music, recording, producing all magical things by our good friend Spencer Worth Davis. Make sure to check out his most recent podcast, uh, Dang, That's Weird. And remember, sometimes it can be helpful to remember what you want your life's values to be. Do you want to value independence? Do you want to value kindness? Do you want to value community? We have such a limited time here and we can get lost in the everyday decision-making and the everyday pressures of success and family and work and capitalism. We can forget what we want the lifeblood of our life to be, what we want to be the driving motivator in our decision-making. So I... I spent the weekend trying to think about what my family's values were going to be, what my life's values were going to be, and how I can make choices that support those in the very limited time I have here. Um, yeah. And if all else fails. Just break up. <laughs>